Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Kirk. Please stand up if you would and reach for your Bibles. And if you don't have one this morning, you have one in your pew, please join us as we read from God's Word this morning. And open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. I'll be reading verses 45 and 46. Again, Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46. Pastor Bruce continues with his uh, message series entitled, Cries from the Cross. And this morning's message title is, A Cry of Anguish. So again, we'll follow along um, in Matthew 27. I'll be reading verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bow your heads and pray with me, please, this morning. Father in heaven, how great you are. How majestic you are. You are the one true God. Father, it is hard to comprehend the pain and suffering and anguish that our Savior went through on the cross, doing this for us. Father, I ask today, may we realize in a different way through this message that pain and suffering, that anguish that he felt, that cry that he made, Father. May your word come to life and speak to us, Father, and grab a hold of us with this message. Allow us to take action on what we hear this morning and appreciate this incredible gift, Lord Jesus, that you have given to us, this gift of salvation. This morning, draw us closer to you through this message. Empower Pastor Bruce to speak in a way that we can understand this cry and apply it in our lives, that it would change us and it would make us new through it, Father. I thank you for this time and this message and being in your house this morning, Father. We praise you and thank you in your name. Amen. Well, as Randy said, we want to continue in our series that we have been in for the last few weeks. The series we've been calling Christ from the Cross. And what we're doing in this series is basically looking at the seven last sayings of Jesus Christ that he spoke from the cross. And uh, to kind of help us visualize uh, these sayings from the cross, to help us visualize the scenes at the cross when Jesus died there, I want to show you a video clip from The Passion of the Christ. I know many of you have seen this movie uh, in the past, but I, I think it will just help to give us a visualization of, of what took place when Jesus cried out these seven scenes. And so uh, let's take a look at it here. When you watch that scene, at first glance, it, it may appear that all these events that took place at the crucifixion lasted no more than an hour, perhaps even less than an hour. But when you begin to examine the scriptures, it reveals that Jesus' death really took no less than six hours as he hung on the cross. His hands and feet were nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. What we read here in Matthew, it says uh, the third hour, and that's a Jewish time there, the third hour beginning from 6 a.m. or sunrise. And so for our time frame, it would be 9 a.m. And then he died at 3 p.m. or the ninth hour from sunrise. 
And so, during those six hours on the cross, as we see in this clip, Jesus made seven statements. And every one of these statements has profound impact on our lives when you begin to understand what he said. The first three statements, it's interesting, were uttered in the first three hours during daylight. And each of those first three statements focused not on himself, but rather they were focused on other people. We saw in the first cry, the cry of forgiveness, when he prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And then the cry of salvation when he assured the repentant thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. And then last Sunday we saw the cry of compassion when he comforted his mother Mary with the simple words of woman, behold your son. And then he looked to John, his beloved friend, and said, behold your mother. And now we come to the fourth cry, which is a cry of anguish as Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani. The words are Aramaic which was the common language of the day. And the words form a question that screams across Calvary or Golgotha and still rings in our ears today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now appropriately, this cry has been called the most staggering sentence in the gospel records. No statement of Jesus is more mysterious than this one. I mean, for who can comprehend what he said. The problem is not so much with the words. The words we understand. The words are simple. But what do they mean? The story is told that Martin Luther, he actually sat and stared at this very text, trying to ponder what these words meant until finally he stood and simply said, God forsaken by God, how can that be? Indeed, how can that be? How can God the Father forsake His own Son? And yet, that is the very question that we will seek to answer this morning. Now, before we answer that question, it's, it's, uh, I want to draw your attention to two observations. Two things were present from noon until three in the afternoon. We see this in our text in Matthew 27. Two things were present, darkness and silence. We see the darkness of God's judgment on sin, and we see the silence of Jesus being forsaken by God. The Bible tells us that from 12 noon until the time of Christ's death at 3 p.m., a blanket of heavy darkness literally fell upon the land. One moment, the sun was shining. And in the next moment, it was suddenly dark. As Charles Spurgeon said, it was midnight at midday. So three hours of light are now followed by three hours of a chilling darkness that you can feel. This was no mere eclipse. An eclipse only lasted a few minutes where this darkness lasted for three hours. Whether or not God used a a a storm and clouds and all of the above to, to cover the land, we do not know. What we do know is that this was a startling supernatural darkness caused by God's judgment on sin. And then suddenly, after enduring three hours of darkness and silence, Jesus screams out. He says in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now just think with me for a moment this word forsaken. Forsaken, it's a powerful word. It's quite strong. It means to abandon. It means to desert, to disown, to turn away from, to utterly forsake. And please understand, when Jesus cried out to God, it was not simply because He felt forsaken. He said it because He was truly forsaken by God the Father. Have you ever felt God forsaken before? Have you ever felt forsaken by God? Have you ever been abandoned by someone? I would suggest that nothing hurts more. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been forsaken by a spouse, and it ripped your heart out. Or maybe you've been abandoned as a child when your dad or mom just walked out on your family. Or maybe you've been forsaken by a friend who turned on you. Maybe you were forsaken by an employer, a coworker, or whatever the case may be. Nothing hurts more than the feeling of being forsaken and being abandoned. As Raymond Brown points out in his book, The Death of the Messiah, Jesus had been abandoned by his disciples. And now he is mocked by all who have come to the cross. Darkness has covered the earth. There is nothing that shows God acting on Jesus' side. So no wonder Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The question Jesus cried out on the cross was first asked by King David in Psalm chapter 22 when he cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. And now the Son of God repeats that question from the cross, but there is no answer. The only answers Jesus received were silence and darkness. The silence of being forsaken by God, and the darkness of God's judgment descending upon the earth. I would suggest that clearly something more is at stake here. So what is going on here in this scene? What is happening during these three hours? What is happening that caused Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think the answer is this, of what happened in Jesus' cry, is Jesus at that moment became my substitute on the cross by paying the penalty for my sin. You see, at this moment, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. What Jesus was doing was bearing sin, carrying sin, wearing sin. Jesus, in other words, was taking all the sins of the world upon His shoulders. And in doing so, Jesus takes my place on the cross. He takes your place on the cross. He died in your place. He became your substitute on the cross. The Bible says it like this in 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, what in the world does that mean? Atoning sacrifice. Well, atonement means payment for damages done. For example, you hit somebody's car and you have to do what? You've got to make sure it gets fixed, either through yourself You pay for the damages or you call up your insurance agent and your insurance covers the damages. That's atonement. 
is payment for injuring somebody else. It's compensation for a sin or wrong that you've done. It's satisfying the law's demands for justice. And the Bible says that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. And so in those dark hours, Jesus became legally guilty of our sin, and for that, he was judged by God the Father and paid the penalty for our sin with his death on the cross. Now we can perhaps better understand why it was midnight at midday. The darkness, in other words, was symbolic of God's judgment on sin that was now upon His Son, Jesus Christ. As John Stott wrote, our sins blotted out the sunshine of God's face. So we see the darkness of God's judgment and the silence of Jesus being forsaken. We now even come to understand a little bit of what happened with Jesus becoming my substitute. So when we stand back from this scene on the cross, this fourth cry of anguish, what do we learn from it, though? What does it mean for us today? What should we take away? What lessons do we learn from it? And I want to suggest to you this morning, there's three lessons we learn. Three things that teach us here. It teaches us about the holiness of God, the seriousness of sin, and the costliness of our salvation. So look with me at the first lesson we learn, is that God is holy. We learn that God is holy. Now, we are told this over and over again in the Bible. You go to the end of the Bible, the last book in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, and it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And again, what what does this mean, holy? It doesn't mean you have holes in your jeans or your socks. That's not the idea. But holy means separate from sin. It means absolute purity. It means utter or ultimate perfection. And because God is holy, he hates evil and sin. And because God is holy, he will not even look on that which is corrupted or evil or wicked. In fact, God's holiness demands that he turn away from sin. We see this in Habakkuk. 1, verse 13, when it says this about God. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Now, this begins to help us answer the the one great question out of this text, out of this cry of anguish. And that is, why? Why did God the Father forsake His Son on the cross? Have you ever wondered that? As you see that scene in the video clip, as as Randy read it for us in our text, does that question not come to your mind? Why? Why would God do such a thing? Well, the answer is because Jesus became sin for us. And God's holiness demands that He turn away from sin. You see, since God is holy, He cannot look upon sin. So when Christ took upon Himself the sins of the world on the cross, God turned His back on His Son. Now, again, just think about this for a moment. Because is it it not the chief duty of a father to take care of his children? Is it not a father's job 
to make sure that his children don't suffer needlessly. So what would cause a father to forsake his children, his own son? When we hear about this in the news, even in our culture today, we are still appalled at this. When a parent abandons a baby in a child, I can't even imagine forsaking my own two boys. What would cause me to abandon my two sons? And as I ponder that question, I can't imagine the answer. But that is what God did when Jesus died on the cross. He abandoned his own son. He turned his back on the one who was called his only begotten son. So how could God the Father, even in all his holiness, turn away and forsake his beloved son? Well, the Apostle Paul explains it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Look at it in your notes here. It says, God made him. Who's the him? His son, Jesus Christ. God made Jesus Christ, who had no sin, in other words, who was perfect, who was sinless, to be sin for us. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So think of it. The sinless one became sin for us. When God looked down on the cross that day, he saw not his sinless son, but sin itself. And then you go to the Old Testament in Isaiah 53, 6, and it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And then notice the phrase, And the Lord has done what? Has laid on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Think of it. All the evil of this world was laid on Jesus when he died on the cross. Now, This is hard for us to fathom. This is hard for us even to imagine. So perhaps an illustration will help. One author describes it like this. Let me read it. Imagine that somewhere in the universe there is a cesspool containing containing all the sins that have ever been committed in the world. The cesspool is deep, dark, and indescribably foul. All the evil deeds that men and women have ever done are floating there. Imagine that a river of filth constantly flows into that cesspool, replenishing the vile mixture with all the evil done every day. Now imagine that while Jesus was was on the cross, that cesspool is emptied onto him. See the flow of filth as it settles upon him. The flow never seems to stop. It is vile, toxic, deadly, filled with disease, pain, and suffering. And when God looked down at his son, he saw the cesspool of sin emptied on his head. No wonder he turned away from the sight. Who could bear to watch it? Think of it. All the lust in the world was there. All the broken promises were there. All the murder, all the killing, all the hatred between people. All the theft was there. All the adultery, all the pornography, all the drunkenness, all the bitterness, all the greed, all the gluttony, all the drug abuse, all the crime, all the cursing. Every vile deed, every wicked thought, every vain imagination, all of it was laid upon Jesus when he hung on the cross. And once Jesus became sin for us, God the Father had 
to turn away from sin and forsake His Son. When Jesus was wearing our sin on the cross, God the Father could not bear to look at the sins that His Son had become. He had to avert His eyes. He had to shield His eyes. He had to turn His back on His only begotten Son. And at that moment, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice that Jesus doesn't call Him Father. Every other time Jesus spoke to God, He calls Him Father. But at this moment of His greatest agony on the cross, Jesus doesn't say Father. What does He say? He addresses Him, My God. My God. This would be like one of my boys walking up and calling me, Mr. Adrian, can I have 20 bucks? And I'd be like, who are you? Instead of calling me Dad. What's happened here? What has gone on between God the Father and God the Son? Well, the Father-Son relationship has been broken. There is a distance between the two. There is alienation here that I cannot fully comprehend and fully explain to you. And yet, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Son was truly forsaken by God the Father. Just think of it. Here's Jesus on the cross. He is part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, who for all eternity has been in perfect harmony, perfect unity, perfect delight with God. Jesus has never known what it means to be separated from God. But for now, for the first time in all of time, he experiences it. Jesus is now alienated from his Father, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is because Jesus became sin for us. And God's holiness demands that he turn away from sin. So what do we learn from this scene, this cry of anguish? Listen, we learn, hear me on this, we must never, never minimize the holiness of God. The second thing we learn from Jesus' fourth cry from the cross is that sin is ugly. Sin is ugly. But let's be honest about it. We don't really think sin is all that ugly, do we? Because everything in our society today, the movies, the songs, TV shows, the media, our friends, our culture, make sin look attractive. They make it look appealing, make it look pleasing, make it look like everybody's doing it. So we don't really think sin is all that ugly. In fact, we even go one step further. We think sin is sometimes even funny. Think about it. Most of the comedy today in our culture, especially in TV sitcoms and movies, is predicated on the idea of taking something that God hates and making it funny. That's Satan's strategy. Because if Satan can get you to laugh at something, it lowers your defenses, and then you begin to think, hey, it's, it's not so bad after all. That's why we almost never see the consequences of sin 
in our culture today in movies and TV. But if you want to see the true consequences of sin, of my sin and your sin, then just look at the cross. It's horrendous. It's ugly. It's serious. It was our sin that caused the Father to turn away from the Son. It was our sin floating in that cesspool of iniquity that was poured on Jesus. So we may never minimize the seriousness and ugliness of sin. Now, just how ugly is sin, though? Let's answer that question here for just a few minutes. How serious is it? What does it actually do to us? Well, notice, number one, sin alienates me from God. Or you can even write, separates me. Sin separates me from God. When Jesus became sin for us on the cross, he experienced the ultimate penalty for our sin. Separation from God, which for him was the greatest agony of all. Listen to me. Sin always breaks the relationship. It creates distance between us and God. It separates us from God. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. You ever pray? You feel like your prayers aren't getting past the ceiling? You're just kind of bouncing off? And you feel like you're getting nowhere in your prayers? Perhaps one of the reasons is because there is sin in your life and you're separated from God. Every married person here this morning knows what I'm talking about. When there's conflict between you and your spouse, the intimacy is interrupted. It's broken. Listen, I've been married for over 20 years. And my wife doesn't have to tell me when she's upset at me or mad at me. Man, I just know. I know it from her body language. She doesn't have to say a word. You can just sense it. And any time there's conflict in a relationship, there is a sense of distance. That doesn't just happen with people. It happens with God. Because sin alienates me from God, separates me from God. That's how serious and ugly sin is. Number two, sin overwhelms me with guilt. Notice what the Bible says in Psalm chapter 38, verse 4. It says, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Listen, when you're filled with the guilt of sin in your life and you haven't dealt with it God's way, it's like you're carrying a bag of garbage over your shoulder and you're taking it with you everywhere you go. You're carrying unnecessary weight that God never intended for you to carry. God doesn't want you to walk around feeling guilty. He wants you to walk around and live through this life feeling forgiven. But as long as you do what I want to do, and I ignore God, and I reject His forgiveness that is found in His Son, Jesus Christ, listen, we are going to be overwhelmed with the guilt of our sin in life. And that guilt then produces all kinds of other problems in life. Emotional issues, physical issues, you name it. Sin is serious. Sin is ugly. Just how serious and ugly it is? Well, notice number three. Sin condemns me to death. It condemns me to death. When we sin, there is always a penalty to pay. And folks, that penalty is death. 
both physical death, that's why we, have, we die in this world today, but more importantly, spiritual death. And whenever you see death in the Bible, it talks about physical death, spiritual death, and spiritual death is always separation from God for all eternity. Romans 6.23 says the wages or the cost of sin is what? Death. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages. We understand wages is something you earn. We also understand gifts. We like gifts. Why? Because it's something you're given. Because of my sin, though, what have I earned? Death. I deserve to be punished for my sins. My sin must be punished. Listen, somebody must pay for our sin. Either you will or somebody else will. Jesus says when he's on the cross, listen, I will. I will pay for the penalty of your sins so you don't have to pay for them. That's what Jesus was doing when he died on the cross. He was taking your place. He became your substitute. And that, is that not good news? It's great news. Listen, if you really, truly want to know what God thinks about sin, just look at the cross. This is what sin deserves. The judgment of God. This is what sinners like us here this morning deserve. To be put to death for our sins. The cross shows us the seriousness and the ugliness of our sin. But thankfully, there's a third thing we learn from Jesus' cry of anguish on the cross. And that is we learn that salvation is costly. There is salvation. There is good news, but it is costly. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life. It is a free gift. Yes, salvation is free, but listen to me, it's not cheap. Somebody had to pay for it. Somebody had to pay for your salvation. Yes, salvation is free to me, it is free to you, but somebody paid the cost and his name is Jesus Christ, and the price was his death on the cross. The Bible says it like this in Romans 3.25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. God's justice says, because he's a holy God, a righteous God, a just judge, his justice says sin must be judged. Our sin was judged on the cross. And mercy says, I'll pay the penalty. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin with his death on the cross. Never underestimate the cost of your salvation. Without the cross, there would be no salvation. Without the cross, there would be no forgiveness. Without the cross, our sins would still be upon us. It cost Christ everything to redeem us. Now, that brings us to the best news of all. It brings us to the good news of Jesus' fourth cry. Look at it coming up on the screen. And that is this. Jesus was forsaken by God 
so that we might be accepted by God and never forsaken as his adopted sons and daughters. That's great news. Listen to me. The Son of God was forsaken on the cross. But the sinner who repents of their sin will never be forsaken by God. You do not have to fear the penalty of your sin, which is death. You do not have to know the feeling of being forsaken by God the Father. Jesus went through what He went through on the cross so that we would never have to go through it. Yes, Jesus cried out to God from the cross. Yes, it is true. Jesus experienced separation from God as a result of our sin. And yes, Jesus was forsaken on the cross. But get this, He was not forsaken forever. As we will see in the very last cry of the cross, Jesus spoke to the Father one more time from the cross when He prayed and He addresses God, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. Do you know what that means? It means the relationship between the Father and the Son was reestablished. It means the Son spoke and the Father answered. It means God received the Spirit of Jesus when He died. He did not let Jesus rot in the grave, but raised Him back to life on the third day. So although the Son was forsaken for our sins, He was not forsaken forever. And neither will you be forsaken if you will come and meet the Jesus at, your, at the cross as your Savior. Now, we've seen the fourth cry of Jesus, the cry of anguish at the cross. We've even learned three things of what it teaches us. But how should we respond to all this? How should I respond even today to what Jesus said 2,000 years ago, and to what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. Listen, the cross demands a response. So how should we respond? What should my response be? Well, I think there's two responses at a minimum here. Number one, I need to turn from my sins. I not only need to turn from my sins, but I need to trust Jesus to save me. Man, that's what the cross is all about. There is no other way. I'm going to get to heaven. I must turn from my sin and put my trust in Jesus, in Jesus alone, to save me. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. Man, I love that. Because you know what that means? That means it doesn't matter what my background is. It doesn't matter what my language is. It doesn't matter what my race is. It doesn't matter what my religion is. It doesn't matter how bad I've been in the past. We can all be saved the same way. By trusting Jesus as our Savior. Here's the deal. If God the Father was willing to turn away from his own son when he became sin on the cross, then just think of this. Don't you think he will certainly turn away from every person who refuses to trust his son? 
as their Savior? Folks, the answer to that question is absolutely. Do you know what the worst thing about hell is? Because that is the destiny of those who turn away from Jesus Christ as their Savior. Their destiny is in a real, literal, eternal place called hell. And do you know what the worst place of hell is? Yes, there will be torment and suffering. But it's the one place where people are utterly forsaken by God for all eternity. But the good news is, you don't have to be forsaken by God in hell. Jesus took your place on the cross. He became your substitute and He paid the penalty for your sin. And now, it is simply up to you to respond to God's greatest act of love. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus to save you. But there's a second response that we should act upon. And that is, I need to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, would you not agree with me that this is the best news in all the world? That was pretty pathetic. Is this not the best news in all the world? Listen, if the Jayhawks had won Friday night against Baylor, that would be great news. Jerry and you Mizzou fans think yesterday what took place at Sprint Center was great news. That's pitily. It's nothing. To compare to this news, this is the best news in all the world. So can you imagine keeping this news a secret? Can you imagine keeping a secret that all your sins are forgiven? That Jesus has already paid for them? That I don't have to walk around feeling overwhelmed with the guilt of my sin? Can you imagine keeping it a secret that if somebody died for you so that all your sins could be forgiven, wouldn't you want to know about it? Listen, this is why we exist as a church. It is why God has still left you here on this earth as a believer and hasn't taken you home yet. To tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. In what he did on the cross in his resurrection, in the difference that it can make in our lives, not only today, but for all eternity. Now, a significant event is coming up in four weeks. Anybody know? Easter. Four weeks from today, we will celebrate Easter. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all across our nation, hordes of people will enter into churches. It is a prime opportunity to invite somebody to come and hear the gospel is at Easter time. So let me ask you, who are you going to invite to come with you to church this Easter Sunday? It's April the 8th, four weeks away. Do you have somebody in mind? Let me encourage you to write down the name of one person, even write it down in your notes now. And start praying for them and invite them to come to our Easter service here at Glenwood at 1045. Listen, share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone. Care enough about someone who needs to hear the good news to at least invite them to come with you to hear it. And Easter is a great opportunity. Listen, nobody, your friends, your coworkers are not going to be offended if you invite them to church on Easter Sunday. And even if they are... So what? 
Why? Because this is the greatest news in the whole world. Has it not made a difference in your life? Then it certainly can make a difference in their life. So who are you going to invite? Begin praying with them, or praying for them, I should say, even this week. With our heads bowed, let's pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus to save you. And I'm sure there's a handful of people here who have, are in that situation. But folks, let me encourage you, this can be the day of your salvation today. <coughs> and if God is speaking to you, and you're ready to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus to save you, I want to lead you in a prayer. You can just pray something like this in your heart, right where you're sitting. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for being my substitute and paying the penalty for my sins. I want to trust you as my Savior. I want to turn from my sin and accept your offer of forgiveness. And I invite you to be the leader of my life. Thank you for saving me with your death on the cross and the power of your resurrection. Help me to live for you. In your name I pray, amen. As the praise team sings, I want to encourage the rest of us to take a few moments here to pray for the person, for just one person, who needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Lift that person's name up to the throne of God and ask God to begin to open their eyes and to make them receptive to your invitation to our Easter services. Will you pray with me for that one person?